Coming up on this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast. For I have envisaged and envisioned the 2022 European Champions League final. And George Hamilton, we go over now live. He has your commentary. Over to you, George. We're in the 90th minute of the 2022 Champions League final. Liverpool won, Bayern Munich won. This is it for Liverpool. Arnold, out to Jordan Henderson. Fabinho, Klopp streaming them forward from the sideline. Milner now, back to Henderson. Robertson, it's Robertson. Salah, Fabinho, back to Salah. Plays it through and it's Rosenstock. Rosenstock, what a goal. Rosenstock has done it. Mario Rosenstock has won the Champions League for Liverpool. What a goal. A Salah chip, a magnificent overhead kick from the Liverpool captain, Mario Rosenstock. And he's won it at the desk for Liverpool. Look at that. Oh, my word. I've seen it all now. Yes! <laughs> Well, I've got to say that little piece of commentary there was one of the highlights of my, well, life really. A dream come true for me. Definitely the next best thing to actually scoring the winning Champions League final goal. And also a mark of the man who joins me on this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast. He's one of Ireland's best known broadcasters, of course, and commentators. An unrivaled authority on all things sport. And great crack too, it's so it happens. It's George Hamilton. A voice that'll be familiar to any sports fan, of course, or indeed classical music fan, and I tune into his show regularly um, on the weekends, Hamilton Scores. George has so many brilliant stories collected over decades of rubbing shoulders with the greats of sport and travelling to major international football tournaments and Olympic Games all over the world. And we hear some of his best stories in this conversation. He just sat back in the, in the passenger seat put the recliner back a bit, lit up a cigar. I just yeah. chatted about everything. I hardly had to speak. I'm just driving the car. Chatting away, mm. just chatting away yeah. to you, George. <laughs> That's exactly it. Lighting up a cigar and he's yeah. catching the smoke. <laughs> it's unbelievable, George. Booze was banned, you see, on match days. But we had our stash because we were living in this hotel. And we were out on the balcony on this warm night at 1-1 draw, just looking down at them. And I was walking towards the commentary position in the stadium in Hanover, and these guys were coming towards me, and they were wearing green shirts. So I was kind of getting myself ready to say hello and have a bit of banter with them. When they walked right past me speaking German, they weren't Irish at all. They decided to follow <laughs> Ireland because Ireland was the story. The debate about it, a United Ireland soccer team, is the wrong way around. It's, kind of, it's beginning at the end, wouldn't it be great if? But how do you mm. get to there? And somebody has to make the first move, and I don't see anybody making that move. That is all coming up very shortly here on the Mario Rosenstock podcast, a podcast that is proudly sponsored, of course, by our friends at Curry's, which is the only place to shop for TVs, laptops, kitchen appliances, and all the other consumer electronics you might ever need. So a big thanks to Curry's uh, for everything they've done throughout the year for us, and also to you. Thanks for listening, for hitting those little subscribe and follow buttons, for leaving ratings and reviews. Please do so today if you can. But especially thanks for recommending this podcast to your friends and family. I've had so many great comments over the year or throughout the year and so many letters and emails which you can send to me directly of course at mario rosenstock at gmail.com and i read them all that's what really moves the dial tell them about the comedy sketches about the great guests about the funny phone calls etc spread the word please so speaking of comedy it's time to pay another visit to my fellow podcasters who i admire so much by the way to see what they've been chatting about this week naturally it's turning its attention to a festive theme 
the annual debate over the Christmas dinner, etc, etc. Let's check in first with, uh, let me see, Vogue and Joanne, see what they've been talking about. Joanne? Yeah? What are you doing for Christmas dinner? Christmas dinner? Fuck that. I can't be dealing with that, Vogue. What? No way. I wouldn't go near Christmas dinner. Why not? Coming out in Stephen's Day with my arse the size of a fucking 46A. No can do, girlfriend. <laughs> I spent the entire year getting this arse on my dreams. Yeah. Flossing, polishing, pumping, squatting. And the other thing, don't Riding. <laughs> no, running. I don't fucking run anywhere, Vogie. Anyways. No. I'm not blowing this arse that I've so lovingly sculpted all year by spending a whole day ramming a roast bird down my throat. Look, the only thing I want down my throat this Christmas is a hit. Yeah, we know. Listen, what are you doing instead? Hello? Hunger strike, obvs. Fuck off. I'm going full fucking Bobby Sands on this. What? Fuck it. If it gets me, at least I die with a great howl. You're mad. We're all dead in the long run anyway. Omnicron is going to fuck us all up. Cheers. Cheers. (laughs) (laughs) Glug, glug. And not only Vogue and Joanne, of course, one of the most fated podcasters this side of the world. This is blind by. <sighs> Lads, Christmas dinner. I worry. Every year I stare at my plate and I weep solemn, scrotal tears, lads. Why? I've always wondered. And then I realised I have been weeping for a Brussels sprout. The Brussels sprout is one of the most discriminated, apartheid, shamed vegetables on earth, lads. They're allowed on a plate, sure. But then... They are shunned, they are victimised, called names until they are shoved further and further out to the right of the plate, until eventually they become radicalised, marginalised, far-right vegetables. (laughs) Roast potatoes mock them, legumes load them. As the turkey and ham luxuriates in their middle-class cranberry sauce, the Brussels sprout lies cold, alone, and unwanted on the margins of the plate. This Christmas, spare a thought for the mental health of the Brussels sprout. <laughs> okay, thanks to Joanne and Vogue, and thanks to Blind Boy, and uh, uh, thanks to you for listening to all the sketches uh, throughout the year. Um, if you want to drop me a line to mariorosenstock at gmail.com, stuff that you'd like me to suggest uh, to do, or stuff that you've enjoyed over the year. Comedy I do on the podcast is slightly different to the comedy I do on the radio. So anyway, drop me a line and let me know. mariorosenstock at gmail.com. So, the starting whistle is about to blow. A hush descends upon the crowds in the stands. George Hamilton emerges from the tunnel and onto the pitch. Let's kick things off. George Hamilton, thank you very much for joining me on the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Um, I've had the delighted to be here, Mario. Thank you for asking. You're very welcome, George. I want to start with the with the title, right? So Mm. indulge me here. The nation, the nation holds its breath. Even I got it wrong. I actually thought when you said it it was a nation holds its breath. Oh, it was the the nation. nation. Yeah, yeah. 
Very definitely, the nation. That sentence alone, George, just conjures all sorts of images for people of a special, romantic, almost idealised fairy tale time in, in, mm. in, our, in our little nation's history. Take me back to some yeah. of the memories around that time. Well, th- those were the days. Uh, it, it all began, of course, with the kind of um, haphazard happenstance appointment of Jack Charlton as the manager in the first place. And, you know, the FAI didn't have their man to parade when, when they signed him up on that day in early 1986. And we were the ones who actually told Jack indirectly that he'd got the job. It's, a, it's all in the book, but the story of Stephen Alkin and myself in Merrion Square that night with all the assembled uh, football press, uh, and when the announcement eventually came from behind the green door, everybody was scratching their heads in amazement. Of, and, and not only that Charlton had got the gig, but how do we get a quote from Jack Charlton? And uh, it just struck me. I was not long back for the BBC and had a fat little contacts book, and I, I reckoned a few phone calls, we'd, we'd get him, and we'd get him on Sports Stadium the next day. So Stephen Alkin and I went around the corner of the Shelburne Hotel. We made a few phone calls. It was the late Jimmy Armfield who, who got, us, got us Jack. He rang Jack's wife, and uh, Jack's wife said, oh, yeah, that's fine, that's fine, we'll tell him. He's out, he's out in his, his lodge up on the moors, no communications. But he'd ring me in the morning, and I'll tell him to go into the studio in Newcastle for RTE. So it was all sorted there and then on the Friday night, and Saturday he came in. Uh, and we did the interview. And I don't know who was more shocked, me asking the questions or Jack answering them as the manager of the Republic of Ireland. But that was the start of it. And if you think of the, the 10 years, almost a full 10 years in between until the night at Anfield when, when the Dutch ended it, <laughs> the Dutch again, uh, that um, it was just a magical time. And I, I actually wonder, will it ever come back, anything like that? Can it ever be like that again? Because it was such a sustained roller coaster that we were all on board. It was a bit overcrowded, but we loved it. And it took us through highs and lows uh, and, and uncertainties and then certainties. And a World Cup for the first time and a quarterfinal of the World Cup and a victory over England and a victory over Italy. It, all those things in there, uh, just 10 years of, of sheer magic that I don't think will ever be replicated. And it came at a time in the nation's history uh, when it was entirely, it, it sat very well with what was going on when Ireland was kind of, getting a bit more confident about itself. And it, it, it lifted the gloom of the 80s into the era that uh, then became the Celtic Tiger. It wasn't the football team that brought about the Celtic Tiger, but it, it was all part of the piece. Uh, and it, it was just, what was it they used to say? Uh, was, the, was it the Board uh, Namona advert? Uh, was one of those anyway. It's, it's, now is it's time to shine. And this was, mm. this was the football's time to shine. And that was its era, 86 to 95. The nation holds its breath, of course, is from 1990. Um, but mm. like just previous to that, it, uh, you just brought that up there. The first time we qualified, this this gruff, kind of very northern Yorkshire man, this a man who you wouldn't have associated with Ireland, mm. uh, took over. And of course, he wasn't even meant to get the job. It was Bob Paisley, mm. I think, that was that was down to have mm. the job at, at the beginning, yeah. and. I don't think Irish people, I mean, Go Home Union Jack, for example, was one of the, mm. the first, the, the, the flags that was raised in yeah. Lansdowne Road, you know. So it wasn't as if he was even warmed to initially. Isn't that right, George? And that's absolutely right. I mean, and, and if you read the press reports, I, I went through the archives uh, 
reminding myself of how it actually was. You know, the, the press reports were, were they, they weren't very positive. You know, it's minor improvement here. Bad start, of course, one nil defeat uh, to Wales on a, on a murky afternoon in March 1986. Uh, and then Neville Southall, the Welsh goalkeeper, fell into a divot and broke his ankle. Uh, but they still mm. managed to win 1-0. Um, uh, but that, having lost that opening game, you know, Jack Stock began at a very low level. And even though he was a World Cup winner and a big name in football, this was, people doubted would it ever work. And the press coverage was even, you know, weighing in behind that. And it took a while for the, the thing to gather momentum. Uh, and and he wasn't he wasn't a universal uh, universally accepted as as a as a potential first choice. It, it was a difficult start for him, but he he stuck at it. And he, I think, it, the real secret of Jack Charlton's Ireland uh, was the fact that international management suited Jack to a T. Club management, you know, twenty four seven, having to worry about players all through the the week and trying to get teams out twice a week and one thing and another, just wasn't for him. He was the guy, like, it's even in the, the circumstances in which he learned he got the job via RTE while he was out on the moors at the weekend in solitude, mm. you know, enjoying himself in the open air. So he was he's, was that kind of guy. And you think of what international management is, you know, once a month, bring the squad together, a few days, a couple of matches, mm. and then off they go again. And he can go and hunt and shoot and fish and do whatever he wants to do. And then come back again, watch a bit of football, and then come back again. It suited him perfectly. And I don't know that he actually knew that because he, he was kind of assuming he would carry on being a yeah. club manager because England didn't want him. And then suddenly this Irish thing appeared. Yeah, the way you're putting it there actually is like, it's as if these players every so often got to visit their kind of half-mad uncle who they really yeah. liked every so often. <laughs> yes. And yes. they, for short periods of time, they loved him, but they probably mm. couldn't have done with him week in, week out, or day mm. in, day out. But but yeah. but he was kind of a novelty to see. He was a breath of fresh air every so often <laughs> to see Big Jack. Yeah, exactly. And of course, they were they were playing a different kind of football. They weren't constrained by, you know, the the the, the regular training session every morning, uh, the the drills that they have to go through. They were they were being set free, let off the leash. I mean, you think the way he played the game. Put him under pressure. Of course, how did that work? You knocked the ball long. It's what they call gagan pressing now, the Jurgen Klopp gagan pressing. But it was Jack Charlton to a T, was put the ball in behind them, make these guys turn and run at them and see how they get on. And who knows? You know, it's a percentage game. Sometimes they're going to make a mess of it and you're going to be able to take advantage. And and it, it, it suited it suited the team that he had at his disposal perfectly because it wasn't full of all players. It was full of willing hearts. What's your memories of that first uh, that first time we 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 went to a major tournament? I mean, oh, you know, you're a much younger Mario, man. The... You're obviously buzzing with excitement as well. Yeah. Everything is new. Mm. Every single thing that happens to you and the team and the Irish fans is mm. a new experience. It's never happened before. No, it's it, it was un, it really was unbelievable, and it's alive in my mind today as it was when we first landed in Stuttgart on what was a wet Monday evening before the tournament mm. began at the end of that week uh, in June. You know, I'd been to World Cups and I'd been to European Championships, but uh, there'd never been, there had been Northern Ireland in Spain and, and Northern Ireland in Mexico, but they mm. didn't take a crowd like like the Republic did. Um, and so while there was an Irish interest, it, it wasn't the Jack Charlton Ireland that had created this mass appeal 
Uh, and it was also the bursting of a dam because if you think of it, Northern Ireland had been in Sweden in 1958. You know, it, well, it wasn't old hat being at a World Cup. Uh, they had been there before uh, and they went, mm. kind, of, kind of the getting there was, was the achievement almost. Uh, and so there was no great expectation that something would happen, notwithstanding the victory over Spain in 1982. But there weren't that many Northern Irish fans to celebrate that. But here was this bursting of a dam. You know, Irish mm. sport, uh, by its very nature, because of this massive success of the GAA means that it's it's an Irish thing, and it, there's no international dimension to it. Yes, of course, uh, Gaelic games are played abroad, but they're played mostly among emigrant Irish. So it's it's a very very Irish thing. But this was the first time that Irish, the Irish, who are you know some of the, some of the most enthusiastic of sports fans around. Because they, they, they love all sport. They take it all in. You know, the, the tip hurling fans following Munster Rugby because there's no hurling in the winter. That kind of thing. They, they just, they, they'll take anything if it's good and it's theirs. And, and suddenly there was this opportunity to go on an international stage, put on a green shirt and say, hey, I'm from Derry or Down or wherever, but I can wear a, a green shirt and it says I'm Irish. And the reason I'm wearing the green shirt is because my team is here at this major championship. And they really, really relished the opportunity to do that. And that's my memory. And, and you know, we, we talked to the chief of police in Stuttgart before the first game, which was obviously a potential uh, trouble, uh, trouble spot. And he said uh, something which I thought was very wise. He said, I don't expect any trouble. You know, these people have come to watch football. Why would they want to fight when they can watch football in our beautiful city? And he was right. Mm. He was right. Now they, they, they got on terribly well together. Things changed, of course, in the future. Remember Lansdowne Road in '95, but but then in Germany in '88, it was it was it was fabulous. Yeah, but and re, but because I mentioned everything was for the first time, which means that when the fans mm. of this world sport, the world sport is football, when the fans def- descend on Germany, they will for the first time establish their national, if you like, personality as fans. Mm-hmm. So for example, yeah. the the English fans already had a national personality. It was it was aggressive, it was truculent, and it was mm. um it was confrontational. The Dutch fans had a had a reputation as well, and the Dutch and Germans against each other would have had a a reputation as well. So Ireland's fans could have gone either way, but they chose this passive, peace-loving, happy, joy-spreading way, which yeah. to this day is their reputation. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it, obviously, uh, before the game, uh, anything, as you say, it, it could have gone either way. But I think once they'd won that game against England, any any ancillary encouragement that there was among neutrals was encouragement to be the way you are. Lovely, lovable, uh, uh, enjoying yourself because you're here. Mm. And that's the, the, the main thing, win, lose or draw. And you happen to have got a victory out of this. And isn't this marvellous? I'll tell you a story yeah. about Hanover. Uh, this this uh, was the second match against the Soviet Union. I was on Know Your Sport at the time with Jimmy McGee. So people would tend to come up to me and they, they recognised me and, and they would say hello. And I was walking towards the commentary position in the stadium in Hanover. And these guys were coming towards me and they were wearing green shirts. So I was kind of getting myself ready to say hello and have a bit of banter with them. When they walked right past me speaking German, they weren't Irish at all. They decided to follow <laughs> Ireland because Ireland was the story. And they were there in Hanover to see Ireland play uh, the Soviet Union. And they were wearing Irish shirts. Fantastic. And Charlton himself. I mean, yeah. what were your experiences personally of Charlton? And, and I think you had some 
personal experiences with Charlton, isn't that right? We, we did, yeah. Um, when I was working in, in London uh, for BBC Radio, um, they would have a co-commentator. There'd be two commentators, Peter Jones, the senior man, and me. That was the, the regular team. But there would be a co-commentator. It could be Frank McClintock. It could be Dennis Law. It could be Tommy Doherty. Uh, and on occasion, it was Jack Charlton, who was between jobs at the time. And I have a vivid memory of, of meeting him at Newcastle. Uh, I would arrive at the ground and there'd be an, an appointed place where I'd meet him in the car park at, at the appointed hour. And it was all we could do to get into the ground because everybody wanted to shake his hand because he's, he's from that part of the world. And when we got in uh, to the, the, the kind of commentary area, which was the, the front of the director's box, uh, the way it was set up, there was a seat for me with the equipment in front of it. And then Peter Jones would be beside me to one side. But to the other side, there was this kind of half seat because it was the way that the stadium was configured. The, the, the fans bit came down at an angle. And so the last seat in the row where we were wasn't really big enough for somebody with legs as big as Jack, as long as Jack's. Uh, mm. But he sat in there without, without complaint and did, did, his, did his work. And he was absolutely terrific. And he was the most genial of guy in company. Uh, and you couldn't have asked for more. So I kind of knew him when he got the job and he kind of knew me. So we, 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 were, we weren't, you know, mates in any sense, but I never found any difficulty with Jack. And the thing about Jack was if he ever fell out with you, that was it. The falling out was over once the, once the argument ceased and he, and he turned on his heel and left. Next time you saw him, there was no issue whatsoever. We were so back he didn't to hold grudges. He was, able Not to, at all. he was able to move ahead, yeah. Yes, mm. absolutely. And there's another lovely story of the the, day, the days that they were. Um, Jack uh, was, uh, there was a, a, a game between Northern Ireland and uh, Republic of Ireland under-17s in uh, the junior stadium in Sydenham in Belfast, um, which is near Belfast City Airport. But um, of the FAI weren't that keen to fund uh, the travel arrangements of Jack from his home in the northeast of England to to Belfast. So he was going to come by ferry uh, and he was going to come as a foot passenger, making a point, um, drive the car to Stranraer or Cairn Ryan, get on the ferry and ro- roll up in Larne and then presumably get a very expensive taxi to bring him to the football ground. Well, Stephen Alkin, I've mentioned him before, my, my co- colleague, the football editor at the time, he had a very bright idea. Jack was about a year of the job. He said, why don't you go and pick up Jack and we can, you know, get a, an exclusive. I said, we go to the boat, pick him off the boat. Yeah, go, go get him off the boat, bring him to the match, take him back to the boat. Sure. So this was all arranged and Jack was quite happy with that. Um, the only issue was that uh, the ferry got in at like three o'clock which, or two o'clock, which was kickoff time of the match. So we didn't actually get to the match till nearly half time, which of course then meant the entrance was a, a, a huge thing in this small yes. crowd this small stadium in East Belfast. All of a sudden, Jack Charlton <laughs> arrives like five minutes before half halftime. Uh, anyway, uh, the Irish Independent reported that uh, he, his, his arrival had a galvanising effect on the Irish team because early in the second half, Tony Cousins scored the goal that would actually decide the match. We then went off to uh, the Park Avenue Hotel in East Belfast for the kind of post-match function. It was a dinner top table and Jack made a little speech and did the Q&A and everybody loved him. And then it was, what time's the free? Back in the car, off up the M2, back to Larne, to put him on the boat to get back to Stranraer to pick up his car to drive home. But that drive from East Belfast to the harbour in Larne, which is 30, 45 minutes, he just sat back in the, in the passenger seat, 
put the recliner back a bit, lit up a cigar. I just yeah. chatted about everything all the yeah. way to Lauren. I hardly had to speak. I'm just driving the car. And he's just, he's like my best mate. Just Is he good company like? Was he good company? You feel, you, that obviously puts you at ease and just relaxes yeah. in this guy. And it's Jack Shaw from beside you and he's just chatting away. He's just chatting away yeah. to you, George. <laughs> That's exactly he's it. Lighting up a cigar and he's yeah. catching a smoke. It's unbelievable, George. I know. What are you doing? What do you, you think about, what do you think of Gaza? What do you think of him? Yeah. I know, and oh, yeah. I, yeah, that that was the level that was the level of it. You know, there was one guy I can't remember now who it was. I, I wrote about it in the, in the book, but um, one of the one of the kids he said so, somebody in England has to sign this fella. He's too good, you know. Um, and and yeah, he, it yeah. took about eighteen months for him to get the move, and then Jack Jack capped him. Um, but it it was you know he was talking about everything and anything, and and he was just he, he was so at ease. You know, he'd, he'd been over for the day. He'd he'd had a bit of food and a glass of wine. And now he was kicking back on his way to the ferry where he could probably sleep it off for two and a half hours and then get in the car mm. and drive home. And it was just, it was a lovely day out for me. One of the things, uh, and it was a things, I, I know, I, I know, yeah, it's just, it's lovely. It's just, I could see it. I could picture it. I could picture him reclining back in the, in the seat there and lighting up the old cigar. Here's another one for you. Here's another one for you. Um, you were talking to me there about, you were talking to me about Jack Charlton walking in on an Ireland under 17s game against Northern mm. Ireland. One of the most famous moments of your commentary that I remember. I remember I was in the Leopardstown Inn, and I was in the Leopardstown Inn in 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 Stillorgan. Mm. It was nineteen ninety three, and Ireland were playing uh, Northern Ireland in Windsor Park, and Billy Bingham was stoking it up, and I didn't mm. like it. And a lot of us didn't like it. He was he was mm. up in the ante. He was looking to the crowd and go on, come on, come on. Mm. And Ireland went 1-0 down. I think Jimmy Quinn, wasn't it? Got Jimmy goal. Quinn, yeah. An absolute freak of a goal. Beautiful goal. Mm. And then we needed one back. And Alan Alan um, McLaughlin. McLaughlin. Uh, Alan McLaughlin uh, uh, got the goal. And I think your thing, it's there, it's there. Alan McLaughlin. And mm. I remember thinking to myself, subsequently thinking to myself, how does that work for you, George, when you were commentating on Northern Ireland versus Ireland? So I guess mm. you just, I'll start from that. Northern Ireland versus Ireland. A crunch mm. game. Tell us about it for you. Um, well, I'm, I'm with you all the way on your like introductory uh, preamble there about Billy Bingham and the rest. of it. That was all mm. unnecessary because given the, the times that were in it, uh, it, mm. it was unnecessary to create that kind of atmosphere around the game. When it was, you know, the Republic were the ones who were nearly there, uh, and this, it, it, it was a, it was a night. It was should have been a night for brotherly love, but that didn't, that didn't happen, and it was, it was very, it was very awkward. Uh, not for me personally, just the whole thing because of the, the way the atmosphere had been stoked, uh, and I was never as glad uh, as that night to be on the roof of the stand as opposed to down in the grandstand, because uh, in some stadia you are actually in the crowd when you're commentating. But in this in Windsor Park, you're on top of the roof, uh, a well away. And and as I say, I was never as glad to be in that kind of situation. But it, it, it was it was horrible. You asked the question though, how does it work uh, north against south uh, when I'm from mm. East Belfast and all that? It's it doesn't it doesn't become uh, any kind of an issue at all because bear in mind by that stage I have committed myself to working with RTE. The team that they cover is the Republic of Ireland. And I'm the commentator, and there's no question that I'm going to uh, somewhere be uh, I flying a flag for somebody else uh, when the mm. Irish team is playing. So it, it never it never arose, and it, that may sound a bit a bit trite to say, but it's the truth. It didn't. 
Uh, and there was no one more delighted than me than that the, the Republic got to the World Cup in 94 off the back of that. Yeah, and, and then as a as a civilian then, call you, well, let's call you a civilian <laughs> at, at a certain stage, yeah. right? As a civilian, when you're watching a match and Northern Ireland are involved, do you feel a kinship to watching Northern Ireland and wanting Northern Ireland to win that match? Well, if they're playing somebody else, of course I do, because uh, yeah. any team in green, I will want to do well. Um, and, I, you know, I, I would want, if, if, if their match was on and there wasn't something else that I was involved in, I would certainly watch it and I would certainly uh, be rooting for them. Uh, and I think, you know, especially through the, the Michael O'Neill era recently, you know, the whole dynamic changed. And I think there is mm. possibly now, a, you know, a, a better, the, the mood music is better. I mean, you think of, of how it was in, uh, in France in 2016 when the two shades of green were represented uh, and the fans uh, backed each other, backed each other's team all the way and got along great together, you know, and I, I, I thought that was terrific. You know, the awful tragedy of the guy who, who, who died on the promenade yes. in Nice in the fall yes. uh, and the Republic fans coming with the flowers and the jerseys and everything uh, for the memorial on the promenade des Anglais. It, was, it, was just, it, it, it just spoke volumes for how far we had come, how far everybody had come and how far the whole thing had, had become a, a, a sporting family to, to an extent. Maybe there's some estrangement there, but nonetheless... You know, a respect and a and the fact that the two teams were both there, they they acknowledged each other. Yes, and what about the concept of playing together as one team? Uh-huh. Tell me your thoughts on that. Well, uh, you know, I sat in the Aviva and watched Ireland beat the All Blacks the other week, hmm. uh, and there's nothing nothing like it. Despite the fact uh, that uh, people uh, Ulster folk might feel a bit sore about the un- under representation of Ulster in the Irish team, it doesn't affect. Uh, the way that they support the Irish team and get behind them and enjoy uh, the successes that they have and 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 hurt uh, if they fail. So uh, in terms of an All Ireland soccer team, I think uh, it, it it would be something that would be wonderful because you could imagine something similar happening with fans of of the round ball game. But and here's the big but. This is 100 years old, this divide in sport, in football. And, and I, would, I would draw a parallel with, uh, you know, a courtship uh, where one party fancies the other and makes the first move and tries to bring about, for want of a better word, a marriage. Courtship, wooing, all the rest. I don't see anywhere in the landscape that there's anybody going to say, hey, I fancy you enough to want to be part of the same Union, for want of a better word, and <laughs> you know, yeah. for want of a better word, and I know that that word is 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 loaded as well. It's, you have to be very careful in the words that you choose, but but union in the sense of a marriage, I was meaning, and some somebody, you you have to ask yourself. If, I mean, I think the the debate uh, is about it, uh, the a United Ireland soccer team is is the wrong way round. It's kind of it's beginning at the end. Wouldn't it be great if? But how do you mm. get to there? And somebody has mm. to make the first move, and I don't see anybody making that move. Yeah, are you are you an emotional person? Yes, I am. I mm. am indeed. I was I was going to ask you what or when, if any time, related to your professional career, have you felt the most moved or affected while commentating? 
Because I've never heard you becoming emotional. And that's right. You shouldn't hear a commentator becoming emotional. I mean, do you remember the commentator? Do you, me- do you remember, the, do you remember? wasn't it the Norwegian commentator? Say, Maggie Thatcher, Lord Beaverbrook, your boys <laughs> took one hell of a beating today. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I don't see George Hamilton doing that. <laughs> no, I did. I, 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 uh, when Iceland knocked England out of the Euros in 2016 in Nice, I, I, I did actually um, do a little riff on on him because um, it, it, I felt in it Iceland. was. In Iceland, yeah. He well, he. I, I, I did it. Your, your guys have taken a hell of a beating and re- recalled yeah. that night yes. when he did that when Norway beat beat England, which was a uh, a sensational result at the time. So yeah, no, but and this might sound strange. Yes, mm. uh, of course, I, it was delight more than uh, becoming emotional in those moments when Ray scored those goals, when they beat England, when they beat Italy. But I think quite possibly um, the most emotional moment was when I was alongside my friend Brian Kerr uh, on the, was it the 2012 FAI Cup final? St. Patrick's Athletic were winning the cup for the first time in half a century or something. And at the end of it, Brian Kerr was doing his summary and he was in tears. And I felt, you know, for him and for how he felt, and this was, this was quite possibly the most emotional uh, moment that I would have experienced while actually live on the air. Interesting, interesting. Brian, interesting. yeah. Uh, Brian, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I love, we love Brian. I mean, uh, people love Brian's nuggets. Brian mm. has, you know, you know his, his nuggets are fantastic. I remember, mm. I think he was, he was describing a Shakiri as something, or I think he was describing Shakiri as, as looking like some class of a plumber. You might call from Walkinstown <laughs> or something. He doesn't look like a footballer. He looks like somebody you ring up to do your gas, you know. And, and he sort of a little bit of a belly on them, you know. And he'll turn up and he'll take, you know, a pliers out and and and, and a spanner, you know. And then you know he'll he'll have this sort of low center of gravity, and you'll find out he's 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 not a footballer at all. I thought that was quite interesting. Uh, <laughs> what is George Hamilton? Can you identify? like a favourite bit of commentary that you like, not from yourself, from somebody else. Mm. Um, I'll give you a couple of mine if you want. Do you want me to, do you want me to whet your appetite? Yeah, do, please. Yeah. Uh, David Coleman, of course, would be, would be, would be a favourite from the beginning. So I remember famously uh, uh, one of Coleman's, I think it was the 1968 Olympics. I think it was the 400 metres and it was, and it's Britain one, Britain two, Britain three, and the rest are nowhere. And a Britain was fourth. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, yeah. Right. And then, of course, I don't. This was. I think this is from Spitting Image, or it could have been actually. Uh, David Coleman was like Alberto Wanderaina, the Cuban, opens his legs and shows his class. <laughs> well, here I tell you something about the, that. You go on. That wasn't yeah. Coleman. That was Ron Pickering. <laughs> was it? <laughs> Yes, good one. It's gone in. It's gone into the annals as one of Coleman's ah, because a Coleman ball. Well done. But it was actually of the course. late Ron Pickering. <laughs> Ron Pickering. I know. I knew Ron. Ron was a great athletics and track and mm. field uh, commentator. And of course, the inevitable uh, um, Coleman. Here come the Kenyans. Here come the Kenyans. <laughs> the way he used to. Well, the way he used to speak of them as this globular mass. That moves yes. <laughs> on mass. Here come the canyons. <laughs> uh, you brought back one yeah, so there. Like... You, asking me for a favourite moment uh, is one of his. Um, I think it might have David David Hemery winning something or other uh, Olympic gold. I presume uh, it's a long time ago, obviously, 
but it was a masterful piece of television commentary because he called it, uh, and then uh, again, a, a key element of television, successful television commentary is to match the pictures. So when the picture cuts, you're not off on some ramble about something totally unconnected with what's going on. You're writing the pictures, so to speak, to be, mm. to be there with the, the opposite comment when the shot changes. And the gold medalist, whoever he was, crossed the line. And normally there would be a close-up of the winner going hands in the air and all the rest of it. But this particular winner had crashed across the line and was spread-eagled on the track. So the close-up that followed the finish was not of a, a triumphant athlete, but of an athlete spread out on the track. And at the moment that the picture changed, Coleman had a call him out and he went bronze. Cut to this picture. And that's the price of gold, is this fella banjaxed on the turf. You know, and I, it was just a magnificent comment that captured the moment and matched the picture to perfection. Yes, yes. yes. Um, here, so here's another one that I love. Uh, I think it was Cliff Morgan. And it was um, the Babas and the New Zealand 1973. Mm. And of course, people talk about it as the greatest try of all time. Mm. Um, so I think it's Cliff Morgan is doing the, the commentary. Yes, and, yes. Um, yeah. And, you know, Phil Bennett gets the ball. He, he jinks by about four players and then he starts a move which goes the whole length of the pitch. But mm. the, final, the final words of his commentary are just beautiful because it's the end of a huge move and it's just... Gareth Edwards, a dramatic start! And Edwards goes in at the corner and it's Gareth Edwards and it's a dramatic start and in he falls and it's just, you know, it's just something about it, the way, the, the way it goes. Yeah. Um, I'll give beautiful, you, I'll give you another country. Yeah. Give you another one. Jimmy McGee, Maradona, 86, against England. And there is, if, if, if an aspiring commentator wants to understand what, what it's all about, you only have to watch that sequence and listen to Jimmy, who used six words, I think. Three, three times he said different class, with a different emphasis each time. The point being that when the goal went in, he didn't need to say anything else. He'd said it already, and he, and he said it again. And it was perfect. It, it summed George, it up. George, you're totally right. George, you're totally right. He, basically, Maradona gets the ball in the, before, the, before the halfway line, in one move, he pirouettes and he takes out about two or three players. Mm. It's that moment and move that leads Jimmy to go, Maradona, pirouettes, different class. Maradona goes through four or five players, goes around Shelton, and then McGee's voice goes, different class! And yes. that's ex ex exactly what you're saying. Just back to something you said there a minute ago, um, and you, of course mentioning no names. Do commentators talk too much now in a lot of sport, a lot of the time? Do some commentators talk too much? You talked about, you talked about, we talked two things there. You mentioned somebody, you mentioned Coleman there hitting the mark. Uh, that's the price of gold. And we talked about, we mentioned Jimmy there just saying different class. Mm. You talked about riding the pitchers. Is there a, yeah. pressure, is there a pressure on commentators maybe to fill too much space? You have, um, uh, I don't know that, I don't know that there's have, a pressure on commentators. I think, mm. I think the, the thing is that uh, the, the modern the modern commentator uh, seems to feel that uh, because because there are so many more statistics flying around now than there ever were, that the modern yeah. commentator feels the need uh, to bombard the viewer with uh, statistics and, and information that is not entirely relevant. I mean, I come back to my original point about 
writing the pictures is the picture is the story. The match is the thing. It's not about what happened last week. Uh, it's not about uh, the fact that, uh, you know, these guys played a game 12 months ago. It's not about any of that. It's about what's happening now. And if you actually analyze it, Mario, and think about it, we come on the air. I say we, stations come on the air 45 minutes, maybe more before a game. We've had Richie Sadlier and Liam Brady go through all of this in the studio before the match even starts. The match is a blank canvas. You don't need to bombard the viewer with statistic after statistic. It's about responding to whatever happens in this unscripted drama. That's, to my mind, what commentary should be about, uh, not pouring over stats and reading notes while something's happening that you're not seeing because you're reading your notes. And you hear that all the time. You hear that all the time. Are you, um, this is probably a more difficult question to answer, but you can answer it the way you want it anyway. Uh, I suppose there's a little bit of a, an ongoing debate about the, the direction that Irish football is taking. Well, I suppose less of a debate now because I guess we've had some appreciable progress. Would you agree that we've had some appreciable mm. progress and, and this is the right way to go? And would you, be, would you be on side about this or would you, would you be wait and see, man? No, no, I think, I think they're moving in the right direction. I think, uh, you know, it, difficult stepping up from underage management to, the, to take the, the senior team. And uh, there's got to be a betting in process. Stephen came in with his ideas um, and he, he was basically going to change everything, but then rapidly learned that you can't change everything all at once. And so what he has ended up with after 20 games is a, a kind of a blend of, of the old and the new. Uh, and, a, and, a, and I think the fact that he has shown that he's capable of learning on the job uh, has helped him with the appreciation of the squad for what he's trying to do. Uh, so I actually think the results, you know, of course there were some terrible results, um, like the, the home defeat by Luxembourg. But, you know, they turned a corner with uh, Serbia at home, I thought. Um, they had done well in Portugal, but were suckered into defeat with Ronaldo doing it again. I mean, they, they, they put in decent, four decent performances against the two top teams in the group and ended up finishing third. Now, looking back across the piece, you'd have to say, were we going to get better than that? The years that we did get better than that, we were special. But that's where Ireland is. Like, it's on the third level, hoping to break onto the second level in the playoff spot. But against the two big teams in that group, they played well. Maybe didn't beat them, but... You know the home draw against Portugal, the the nearly the nearly event in Faro, uh, and the the draw at home to Serbia, the late determination bringing them that, uh, and a close defeat in away to Serbia. You know, so I think on balance uh, he should get another crack uh, and see can he get them to the to the Euros. The the route might be through the Nations League, but uh, I mean if he gets them to the Euros, then it's all worthwhile. I think yeah, I think one of the one of the um, nobody cares what I think about this, but uh, I'll just show it in anyway. I think one of the nice things is that I was a few people 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 like me who would be on the outside um, but would be a fan um, noticed that other teams are capable of playing football with very very meager resources. They are mm. still capable of playing football. To wit, Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland yeah. have been. There was a period Northern Ireland went through a few years, a couple of years ago there last few years with Michael O'Neill, they played some exquisite football mm-hmm. and also married that with decent results. Yeah. Having gone through a period before that where they couldn't buy a goal, you need to, you need to give things time. The, arg- the argument that we don't have the players is wrong. I think you need to play. Mm-hmm. 
and be coached to play in a certain way. And I think they, uh, they can learn. They're all decent players. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that we forget that it's a team game as well. And a team can be taught to play as a team. I mean, I know this, the, the, I know the example of Greece 2004 is always used, but it is, it is opposite, the, the, the example mm-hmm. of Greece 2004. And if you consider the big boys, I mean, Brazil were beaten seven by Germany in the World yeah. Cup at home. Uh, Germany fell off the, the, the radar around the noughties themselves, you know. So it's, it's, it, big teams can, get, can go bad too. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not a given that, every, that everything is going to be as it seems. Yeah, absolutely. Change the question. I mean, your first World Cup was 1978. What age, what age yeah. were you then, George? 28. 28. 28. Um, I'll, I'll ask you, I'll go through the World Cups with you, right? Mm. And just give me a, an image from your head. You could, it can be football or it can be social. A social mm-hmm. image. Something that you remember. Something that you saw. Yeah. Something that was whatever. So 1978, Argentina. Archie Gemmell's goal against the Dutch. Scotland nearly qualified. Um, policemen in navy blue fatigues as opposed to uniforms, but no kind of overt military presence in a, in a dictatorship. Uh, just a lovely, lovely place uh, in the foothills of the Andes. Lovely, lovely people and um, yeah. happy memories. In a dictatorship, of course, that was the interesting mm. thing. And, the, and around the time of the so-called disappeared and all that, it was mm. very, very, very strange. 1982 in uh, Spain. Lying by the pool with the Spanish goalkeeper. We were in the same hotel <laughs> as the uh, Spanish team. Arcanada. Uh, Arcanada, that's the very man. And um, he was on the next, the next sunbed reading his book. Great stuff. Just before or after he got scored on by Jerry Armstrong? Uh, that was before he got scored on by Jerry Armstrong because uh, right. they left. The, that was the first phase. They left the hotel to go to Valencia to play Northern Ireland. And it was Northern Ireland who came back to take Spain's place in the same yeah. hotel. Yeah. So it was you that put something in his Pina Arcanada. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Sorry, dumb joke. 1986 in Mexico. Uh, sitting uh, at a bar in Guadalajara with my legs dangling in the water of the swimming pool. This was the way to live in Guadalajara. Um, Guadalajara just to conclude was the greatest one of the greatest matches I've ever seen I think it was the quarterfinal France and Brazil when France beat Brazil uh, and of course it was in Guadalajara that Pat Jennings said his farewell and funny how the memory plays tricks I thought I did that match but it was Jimmy <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting imagine not, imagine a match that you thought you did and it was somebody else yeah I know, I know. over the years over yeah. the years I, I, 19, my, my mind convinced me I'd done that 1990 is standing on a Standing on a on a balcony uh, near the railway station in uh, Cagliari, uh, with a, a glass of Bushmills in my hand, toasting the Irish success in achieving a draw, with my sidekick uh, Tom Flanagan looking down on the segregated hordes of English and Irish trying to get onto the various uh, modes of transport to get out of the place. Booze was banned, you see, on match days, but we had our stash because we were living in this hotel. And we were out on the balcony on this warm night at 1-1 draw, just looking down at them. I know you would, might have expected me to say uh, Genoa and uh, the nation holds its breath, but that, that of course, is above, above all. That is the uh, ne plus ultra. Is that the phrase? You know. So I'm looking for another memory for you. <laughs> Three of my best friends were at Genoa, and none of them can remember it because they were all so pissed. 
<laughs> oh dear, that's a t- I mean, terrible shame. <laughs> well, it is and a terrible shame, but it's the truth. Yeah. I mean, people, I mean, let's, let's be honest about it. Part of the enormous fun of doing these things is was drinking way much, way to excess and just having mm. the time of your life and being protected by mm. your mates, knowing that you could drink your yeah. face off and knowing that you'd probably mm. be okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. This is yeah. this is part of the, 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 and being young and being being 20, being 21, you know? And, yes, uh, oh, indeed, indeed. 94? 94. Uh, was sitting in a, a commentary box with Niall Quinn again um, in Giant Stadium when Italy were defeated by Ray Houghton's goal. And it being an American stadium with an American booth, we were behind glass and we were sodden with sweat. It was so hot. But that's, the, and of course, we went on to Pasadena ultimately. My minder on that trip was the late Ty De Bruyne. We, we were sheltering under cardboard boxes from the heat, cardboard boxes that were out to protect the equipment from the heat. And we got in underneath them with the equipment to try and shield ourselves. It was so hot, my stopwatch melted. Oh, Jesus. And do you remember the technology? Now, the technology now of the time, um, sports technology and diet technology and nutrition technology, fitness awareness. Jack Charlton brought this team out to the, to, out to the United States and he had them train in their tracksuits so that they would sweat even more to try to climatise. Yeah. <laughs> it's bloody Steve Staunton with Factor, Factor 229. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was oh, no yeah. factor that he could have. 1998. 1998. Uh, the memory is of uh, the final in uh, the Stade de France and uh, the fact that the team sheet came up and there was no Ronaldo in it. And... Um, it was, in fact, uh, the co-commentator behind me who tapped me on the shoulder uh, to tell me that Ronaldo had been reinstated. Uh, that co-commentator was for French TV, and he was none other than the tennis star Yannick Noah. Oh, God, yeah, Yannick Noah, yeah. Mm, I don't know why he was co-commentating on a football match, but he was. But Jim Beglin had spotted that Jim Beglin had spotted that Ronaldo was missing from the the team sheet. It came up as a as a list of a squad list with X's against who was playing and X's against who wasn't. And Ronaldo was among the X's who weren't playing. Jim spotted it. I went down to try and find out what was going on. And um, anyway, uh, nobody knew anything. Uh, And it was suggested that the the boot sponsor needed him back in the team. But it was Yannick Noah who leant over, tapped me on the shoulder and said, he's he's back in again. (laughs) Nice one. Nice one. Yeah. Uh, And we'll never know what happened to Ronaldo, of course, will we, before that match? No, no, no. No, we will never know. Funny, no. funny, strange. It was a strange one, wasn't it? He, mm-hmm. People have said he, there was rumours that he may have had an epileptic fit before yeah. before the match. There was just no, no, uh, there was no telling as to what it was going to be or, or what it had been, and uh, we're still none the wiser. And he, he played and like a still zombie. None the yeah, George, this is. I'm really enjoying this, and we're nearly reaching a conclusion. Um, a few people have been listening to this uh, podcast live, mm-hmm. and they're on mm-hmm. the phone, and they'd love to talk to you if that's okay with you. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Brian Kerr's on the line. Say hello to Brian. Ryan, how are you doing? Good to talk to you. How are you doing, George? I'm really enjoying the podcast there. I just have a bit of a problem with you there, George, about that St. Pat's story in 2012. That never happened at all, George. I wasn't crying at all. Now, I'd like you to take that back. I had had an onion sandwich on Ian Rodernan. Now, hold on, George. 
I have asked him, the fella came down from catering and he said, I'll have a tea or coffee and I said tea and he said, there's no water. Okay, fair enough, fair <laughs> all down. But I said, do you have any sandwiches? And he said, no, but they've got some bread and onions. So I said, give us an onion sandwich. So I ate the onion sandwich, but it started dripping out of my eyes. I started crying. Now you're saying I was emotional and saying, Pat, I wasn't, George. I wasn't. <laughs> I'll take it back. I'll take it. Take everything back, Brian. Take, take it, it back. All back. <laughs> okay. Uh, Robbie Keane is on the line. Oh, uh, Robbie. Robbie. Say Robbie. Iraqi. Remember that. Hiya, Robbie. No need for the bad language there, George. How are you? Uh, <laughs> come here. Can you remember your commentary from Ibaraki when I scored in the one-all draw in Germany? I don't remember what I said, but I remember it was the only goal that uh, the big man conceded, uh, Oliver Kahn, conceded Oliver in Kahn, the yeah. whole tournament before the, before the final. That's I remember true. that. I think Queenie, Queenie kind of knocked it on and I just put it sort of shuffled by mm. the can and just kind of got it. Can you name yeah. Just a question for you. I know you, you presented Now Your Sport there for years. <laughs> uh, I have a question for you. Name all the clubs I've played for. Oh, <laughs> Go on. Wolves. Go on. Yeah. Milan. Yeah. Man City. Yeah. No. Oh, goodness. Villa. Yeah. Tottenham. Yeah. Celtic? Y- yeah. How many am I missing? <laughs> About 17. <laughs> Coventry. Oh, yes, of course, yes. Galaxy. Yeah, who could forget Twix. that? Mars Bar, <laughs> Round 3 Macintosh. <laughs> Willy, Wibbly Wobbly Wonder. Chalk <laughs> So that's that's Robbie, yeah. Who else is on there? Uh, oh yes, uh, let me see who else is on. Oh yeah, Kenny Cunningham. Kenny Cunningham's on the line. Say hello to Kenny. Hello, Kenny. Good to talk to you. Yeah, I'd just like to ask George at this particular point in time, this particular moment in time, who does he regard as the greatest player he's ever seen or saw in the flesh at that particular moment in time? In time now, at this particular moment in time, time. <laughs> Have to be George Best, Kenny. Have to be George Best. I was simply a fan back then. And I've never yeah, seen anybody sort of, quite like him. And when did you days, see him, George? Days when I was uh, at school, basically. Yeah. Uh, what, and then, of course, for? I saw him. He was playing for Northern Ireland. There was a match yeah. every... Did he, how did he play for Northern Ireland? Did he play as well for Northern Ireland as he was playing for Manchester City, or Manchester United at the time? He did. He did. He was, he was absolutely fabulous. And when you consider the, the, you know, the nature of the pitches back then and the, the protection or lack of that there was for players like him from referees, that, that he was able to play the way he did was, was quite sensational. And uh, there was a famous victory, I think it was Scotland, he more or less beat them single-handedly and it was in a pretty muddy pitch that October in Windsor Park. And, oh no, he did. He was great and, and everybody loved him. He was just a superstar of, of his era. And um, did you very him? much... Uh, I did, yeah. I, um, oh, um, one of my proudest uh, moments was uh, in uh, an air bridge at an airport in Brazil. Uh, where I found myself queuing to get onto a plane uh, behind uh, Louis van Gaal, who was the manager of the Netherlands, and my friend Kees Jansma, whom I'd mentioned as a commentator earlier on, who was now the press officer of the Dutch Football Association. And uh, I saw Kees ahead of me, and I tapped him on the shoulder. I said, how are you doing? He said, hey, George, he said, and started to talk, and then turned around and introduced me to van Gaal, and introduced me as the man who introduced him to George Best. <laughs> so I I like that I'd, I'd actually done that because after the game in Rotterdam when I'd done my interview with George Best Case was there waiting to do his interviews and he said do you think George would speak to me and I said I'm sure he wouldn't speak 
he's very good about speaking to people. And I said, George, this is Case. Case, this is George. Yeah. And, and off he's, they went. He, he, so there was no question, but he was a very charming, um, a charming, a charming man. Um, oh, he had a charming yeah. way about him, a very, a very, yeah. a very oh, actually charm. Actually, is the word that keeps coming to mind. He was very charming. Yeah. He was. Uh, he lacked a little bit. It seemed to me on all the interviews I've seen, he he lacked a little bit in inner confidence, real confidence, mm. and that's possibly, yeah. you know. But but that but that lack mm. of confidence actually came across as very endearing. It was very charming. Yeah, I think I think you know. Uh, yes, he he wasn't a hard man at all. He was there was a softness no. about him, and and yes. and that appealed to people's better nature. Uh, and he, he 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 had his demons to fight, but he, I mean, he was a wonderful player. And you know, as a as an individual, he was always very very easy to get on with. George, thank you so much for this interview. You have one more task now, and of course, the task is sitting oh, in yes. front of you. And it is a task which any red blooded male in Ireland would dream of having realised. And I am about to have that dream realised by George Hamilton. For I have envisaged and envisioned the twenty twenty two. European Champions League final. And George Hamilton, we go over now live. He has your commentary. Over to you, George. We're in the 90th minute of the 2022 Champions League final. Liverpool won, Bayern Munich won. This is it for Liverpool. Arnold out to Jordan Henderson. Fabinho, Klopp screaming them forward from the sideline. Milner now, back to Henderson. Robertson, it's Robertson. Salah, Fabinho, back to Salah. Plays it through and it's Rosenstock. Rosenstock, what a goal. Rosenstock has done it. Mario Rosenstock has won the Champions League for Liverpool. What a goal. A Salah chip, a magnificent overhead kick from the Liverpool captain, Mario Rosenstock. And he's won it at the death for Liverpool. Look at that. Oh, my word. I've seen it all now. Yes! <laughs> Fantastic. Well done, George. You gave it socks on the voice. I was worried that you wouldn't do that, but you did give it to me. You gave me the full Monty. For you, Mario, it has to be the best. The best. Goal, 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 goal. And that's it from George. And that's it from me. George's fantastic book, The Nation Holds Its Breath, is in all good bookshops now or online. Thanks, of course, to our title sponsor, Curry's, for being great supporters of the Mario Rosenstock podcast throughout the year. Um, and of course, thanks to you, the listeners, who we do it for and who we couldn't do it without. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for following. Send as many emails and letters as you like to me, Rosenstock at gmail.com with your suggestions, with your uh, compliments or with your um, critical, um, critical suggestions. That would be good as well. Uh, Next week, we have a special episode. It's a selection box episode featuring some of the best moments from the best interviews curated together um, in one episode by Patrick and myself. Uh, We hope you enjoy it. It's our favourite bits from 2021. Um, All that remains to say is have a safe, happy and merry, merry Christmas. Bye bye. Bye.